Hello, I'm Anita Arnand and thank you for downloading BBC Radio 4's Any Answers, the sister programme to Any Questions. Good afternoon, welcome to Any Answers. So, nearly all local authorities in England are set to raise council tax and service charges, worried about their financial stability in the future. I want to know, how is your council doing? Does it need to do things differently? Or do you think it's just a question of money? They need more money, pure and simple. And if that is the case, then where should that money come from? 03700 100 444 is the number to call. Uh, You might have heard Michel Barnier this week saying, it's time to tell the truth. But what is the truth when it comes to Brexit? We can talk about trade, we can talk about borders, we can talk about jurisdictions of justice if you like. And I also really would like to know if you feel more informed about Brexit these days. Are you worried about the fate of Northern Ireland? Will you fight to stay in the customs union or fight to get out of it? 03700 100 444. Uh, We've got Labour, the Tories, UKIP all tearing themselves apart over this. Do you look at your political parties, the system and just despair? How would you fix it? Um, All that and the suffragettes. Should they be posthumously pardoned? 03700 100 444, the number to call, text 84844. Or, of course, you can tweet using the hashtag BBCAQ. It is, it was, it may always be Brexit that leads this programme. Uh, So let's take our first call on that. Paul Gilbert is calling us from Taunton. Good afternoon, Paul. Good afternoon. So, look, yes, I mean, it's, it's on a... It's on a cycle, isn't it? And now we're talking about borders, hard borders, soft borders. Uh, What do you make of what Michel Barnier has said, which is, look, the truth is it's going to be a hard border. The truth is that's the hard truth and you've got to face it. Right. It's been made very clear and agreed by both sides that we will not have a hard border. Michel Barnier is deliberately attempting to make these negotiations more difficult to show the EU members that it's a tough negotiator. Well, Mr Barnier, it will not work. We have a long-standing arrangement with Ireland and we will retain an open border. It's in the interests of all EU members and the UK to have tariff-free agreements. To do so would be damaging to all EU countries. Hmm. Britain is leaving the EU. There will be no second referendum. The EU should accept those facts and make it easier for all. Britain will be successful in securing free trade agreements both inside and outside of the EU, and, and EU members know this. The scaremongering and the threats by Mr. B- Mr. Barnier will only lead to a decline for the EU. OK, well, let's... let's can uh, I just say one thing? No, I'm not getting rid of you. you can, you've said, you've okay. said a few things, and you can say the other thing as well, but I want to bring Sean O'Flynn in on this. He's calling us from Bantry in Ireland. Hello, Sean. Hi, Sean, meet Paul. Paul, meet Sean. So so Paul is saying, look, this is just a load of rabble-rousing, scaremongering, trying to frighten us into a position before the end of a negotiation. Uh, you're in Ireland. What does it feel like for you? From my perspective, like the comments I'd make now would be that of a concerned friend. Um, and if I could take sort of a, an example that nearly everybody encounters in their personal lives, we all know somebody who's drinking too much. Sean, can I, can I, sorry, I'm so sorry, it just, it does sound as if you've been trapped in a bucket. Do you mind if I come back to you? We're, we're going to call you back because I've got a feeling that uh, it's going to be an interesting call. But um, yes, either you sound like a, a Dalek or, or, or somewhere, in, as I say, in metal. Uh, Paul, you wanted to say the one more thing. Say the one more thing and we'll try and get Sean back up. OK, well, Britain wishes to maintain a good relationship with the EU and like Churchill, will not be browbeaten. Go and see the film Darkest Hour, Mr. Mm. Barnier, and you will see that the Brits are quite resolute. Okay, you mentioned Churchill. Um, yes. I mean, I don't, I don't know. Uh, 
an awful lot about Churchill, but I do know that, I think it was 1946, he made a very famous speech calling for a United States of Europe. Do you know that speech? Yes, I realise that. So... But, um, what, what, what it showed in the film is that the government were all... Most of them were in favour mm. of going to Hitler and coming to some agreement. And it was only when Churchill went out to the people and asked them mm. that they stood up and said, no, we are resolute. But, but, but are just, I mean, I mean you, you brought up Churchill, not me, but he also said, you know, having been <laughs> experienced the cost of war, he said uh, that it was very important to have a recreation of the European family. Yes, but when, uh, when that happened, we weren't going to go into uh, a United States of Europe as such. We were still going to retain our, our sovereignty. Yeah, but he and called, we, I mean, those are the words that he used, uh, creation of the United States of Europe. As I say, I'm not, there may be Churchill experts out there who can tell me context about that, but the words he did use were United States of Europe. Stay, stay with us, Sean is back. Sean. Okay. I'm back. Uh, my my mistake. I had the speaker on there. Ah, okay. No, I think that I, to me, looking at from this remove from a peninsula out in the Atlantic, looking back at the UK, I think that what's at issue here is a psychic problem. And very often, a person who has, let's say, an addiction problem, outside of the actual day-to-day -day addiction, there's usually a psychic problem at the back of it. And also, in the case of the UK, there's a problem of status change. Mm -hmm. I grew up in the 1950s. We were very aware that the UK was big, along with France, the States and Russia and so on. Uh, we had very low status at the time. We were kind of an isolated island off an island. Times have changed. As a result of being in the EU and our own efforts, we have come on as a society in Ireland by leaps and bounds. Mm. Meanwhile, when I look at the UK, I look at a kind of a, sto a slow, almost imperceptible decline. Like when I was born in 1950, the empire was very much there. And now what's happening to Britain is they're having to deal with the consequences of having an, an empire as in immigration and, and rights of citizenship and so on like okay, that. Okay. The Royal Navy was a big thing. Okay. London in the 60s when I was a teenager was the centre. No, so, so, so I don't want to, I don't, I don't, I don't, I mean, I'm Sean, I don't want to stick too much with the past. I mean, I, 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 I've heard the point that you're making, but being somebody who's in Ireland, we have someone here in Paul Gilbert. Paul, you're still there, I'm waving at you. Yes. Uh, Paul says, look, whatever happens, we're not going to have a hard border. Whatever anybody says, it's not going to be a hard border. My simple question to you, sitting in Bantry in Ireland, talking to your friends and neighbours, is Paul right? Is this all a bunch of hot air and actually it's going to be plus ça change? Whatever happens, life will go on. There is only one letter in the difference between friction and fiction, and that's the R. And what you have in the North is not really a peace process. It's kind of suspended unease. It is very, very delicate. So do you think this will tip Anything? it? It certainly won't help. OK. All right, Sean, thank you very much. Paul, thank you very much. Let's take some more calls on this. 03700 100 444. David Rains is calling us uh, from... Uh, Somerset, good afternoon, David. Good afternoon. Hi there. So we're talking about borders um, in terms of peace, in terms of trade also. Um, what is your reading of the situation as we have a clearer picture of it now than we had before? Uh, well, my picture is exactly the same as it's always been. It's always been clear to me that uh, with goodwill, we could have a frictionless Irish border developed for post-Brexit. And we would use an enhanced version of what's called trusted traders, 
or authorised economic operator schemes on both sides of, the, of that border. And there's a successful model for something similar on the US-Canadian border. And in fact, it's described in today's Telegraph. And David Davis is supposed to have visited it. Authorised, uh, authorised, what, 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 what? Authorised economic operators. And, and you, so you're using jargon, which makes I me am, think that I, I you know, you know what, of what you speak. Yes, Tell me I your do. experience. Tell me why you know about well, these what, things. Well, most of the traffic is regular traders, and mm. regular traders register w- with their with their customs authority and get approved, and their trade is known, what the goods that they trade are known, mm. their systems are known, their systems are audited well away from the border. Mm. And most customs auditing now does take place away from the border, the world over, actually. People are sort of stuck in an atavistic way of looking at the world. You know, everything's on a border, with a, stopped with a man in uniform. It isn't like that are, anymore. Are you, are you formally with yes. working for a border? Yes. Tell, well, tell me, well, tell me what thir- capacity. I, I was 36 years in UK customs, and right. since I retired, I've advised on customs right. internationally all over the world, some of it for the EU. So, so, so I, had, I had a brief look at that Telegraph article, and, I, I, and, and you're explaining it, that, look, this is a system that exists on the American border, and that's the American border with Canada, yes? Yes, that's, that's correct. But America has another border with Mexico, which has a fair bit of friction, would you not say? It has friction. A lot of it's uh, the result of um, drugs trafficking and people trafficking. It's a a different problem, a different border problem than it has with Canada. But the the key issue here Mm. is goodwill. And I don't believe that the Commission, at least, is operating with goodwill. And and Monsieur Barnier isn't operating with goodwill. I think if, if, if the EU butted out, the UK Customs and Irish Customs have traditionally cooperated fantastically well. I have some dear friends in Ireland and we cooperated even in the depths of the troubles across that border to resolve transgressions which took place in either direction. There was no problem and it can be developed. You know, Heathrow's a huge port with a massive amount of goods coming through it and a lot of the goods are cleared before they even get there and there is no delay by for customs purposes. Okay. So this is all a myth and I, I do fear it's being exploited by people, uh, sort of political opportunism to prevent us having Brexit, um, mm. destabilise us and it is, it is working. You know, you could hear people on the programme uh, and there was somebody shouted out nonsense, I can't remember who it was, but, it, but it, it's not true. Okay. And um, I, I do fear the Commission is n- not working in the interests of all member states now and not working in the interests of Ireland. Actually, Ireland trades so mm. much with the UK uh, that actually Ireland would probably be better. And what about, what about the voice of Ireland itself that says, you know, the, the voice of Ireland itself says we would like to stay within the customs yes, union? Yes, we have to respect that. So, I, I, Ireland would be better off leaving and having a, a free trade zone, free people moving zone with the UK. There's no doubt about that. But if they choose not to do that, we have to respect that, but we can work together with them. Okay. We can have a joint protocol for transgressions either way on the border. Any controls in depth on traders will be away from the border at the traders' premises, and, and it will not be the um, hard border that people imagine. Most borders, in fact, in the world are going that way. It's just a question of time and technology. Very, very good talking to you. Uh, and also the point there that you raised very clearly is this depends on goodwill. How much goodwill do you think that we can actually muster in the run-up to... Um, I'm not sure we're going to get much from the Commission. I think. So then, I mean, you can't have one hand clapping then, can you really? 
the commission is, is a dangerous. The, de- the commission is frightened of the UK going independently. It, it fears the UK going independent. We're too big. But but he, but but let's just let's just. I mean, just. I mean, you're a very good caller. And I know there are others stacked up. George, um, thank you very much for being patient. Bernard, thank you very much for being patient. All the others. I'm going to get to you in a second. But David has a lot of knowledge about this. David, if as you say. There is mischief, and you, you're characterising it as mischief. Yes. But if um, the the union decides that they're going to exert that what they would see as their right to have the hardest of borders, they will want a hard border. Uh, yes, and they will want a hard border. Well, then it doesn't it doesn't matter what is possible. What we've got in Ireland, which we heard from one of our former previous callers, is a volatile situation which ha- could be brought to a tipping point at any time. If they decide that's what they want, then we um, have to face the yeah. consequences and the people of Ireland listening to this are going to have to face the consequences, well, right? Well, the people of Ireland will know that the, the British, generally speaking, treat the Irish with goodwill. I've worked on that. I know, I understand that, but isn't the reality that if you can't, again, I'm saying the one hand clapping, you accept that they are going to, the, the, the union is going to insist on a hard border. If they insist on a hard border, if that's your characterisation that they're creating mischief, the inevitability of that is still trouble. Yes, they will. The, the, the EU Commission, acting on its own, without the interests of mm. considering the interests of member states, is capable of closing okay. everything down, and we'd, we'd end up in a World Trade Organization deal where the border would be harder, but it would not be as hard as described. Okay. Even then, we could still have a system. The goods that David, David I'm going to have to talk to other people, okay. but, I, but you, you, I'm really glad you called up, and you're always welcome to call up again, 03700 uh, Some tweets here. My goodness, Churchill advocated a United States of Europe, but not including uh, Britain and continental Europe only. He was clear. How dare you rewrite history, said Will. Uh, Another one here, Ruth, says, there aren't any borders around the periphery of the EU empire except Hungary's wall. What's all the fuss about Ireland? Another one here, given unelected Michel Barnier is doing such a good job of showing how the EU rides roughshod over its citizens' wishes, wouldn't the easiest thing be for Ireland to give their population a vote on leaving? Then the border wouldn't be an issue. Uh, Let's take another call on this. Bernard Whitaker calling from Newcastle. Good afternoon, Bernard. Good afternoon, Anita. How uh, are you doing? I'm all right, thanks. Lovely. How, uh, how are you? And what did you want to tell us? Um, well, I, th- I think people forget in the referendum campaign, so little was said about what the customs union was and how it was explained, because it wasn't explained. And the single market was actually created by Margaret Thatcher. And I find it amazing that so many Tories now seem to want to reject what was her idea. And we're in a situation now where in 2016, when the referendum happened, so many people in parts of the country that had suffered five years of austerity had a free go in terms of a free kick at Osborne and Cameron. And a lot of areas voted leave based on the free shot or the free uh, kick at uh, Cameron and Osborne and also... The fact that there were Labour areas and they were wanting to protest against the Tory government. So, so you're you're calling from Newcastle, and uh, there have been some pretty scary figures that have been swirling around this week um, from a cross-party uh, think tank organisation saying the North East is going to suffer really quite badly and giving different scenarios and, and different sort of levels of suffering. Does that make any difference to there those are people? Positives in the North East for Brexit. They're all negatives. Mm. The North East actually exports. It's one of the few parts of the UK that exports in terms of having a positive export uh, sort of... Uh, I, I know, I understand. I understand that. So, But but also, you know, there were places in, in the North East, uh, as you say yourself, you know, people who say, we knew what we were voting for, we wanted out. 
Uh, I'll take that with a big pinch of salt because the referendum campaign was barely four weeks after the local election campaign. It was unlike the Scottish referendum, which went on for 18 months, where everything was fully explored. Okay. Okay. So you don't think it was fully explored or explained? No, okay. No. Yeah. Okay. could have had the referendum in 2017. Got it, Bernard. Thank you very much indeed. If you want to comment on that, oh three seven hundred one hundred four 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 is the number to call. George Steele, so patient. George, thank you very much for waiting. Um, tell me what you've made, what you've heard so far on the programme and uh, from the politicians this week. Well, what I've heard so far, I'm in general agreement with. But the point I wanted to make is Mr Barnier seems to be making it up as he goes along. He doesn't understand his own rules. For example, the borders of the EC are either uh, sea borders or land borders. Where there's a land border, like Hungary, as was mentioned by an earlier speaker, it's a hard border. Now, that hard border is erected by the member of the EC adjacent to that, not the countries outside that. Now, if we're leaving the EC, then the Northern Ireland border is nothing to do with us. Mm. It's the Republic of Ireland who would be erecting a hard border if they wanted to. And it's them that should be leaned on by Barnier, not moaning at us, because nothing to do with us. Okay, George, okay. We're, we're yeah. outside. Okay, got it. Thank you very much indeed. I'll just read a couple more on that border issue and then we will move on and talk about local councils. Um, is your local council struggling? Um, because it seems as if, uh, I think the figure was 80% of uh, councils in England are saying we are struggling and we're going to have to raise our bills and raise the amount we tax people. Um, let's take this from Jack who says the only solution to the Irish border problem is for the Republic to align with the UK leave the EU Ireland effectively won its independence with the Anglo-Irish Treaty of 21 if they hadn't have given it away 50 years later to the then EEC we wouldn't be in this mess now Graham Brown says the EU have to be careful it's not just exports to the UK from Ireland that are at stake as most exports to the rest of the EU travel through the UK and border checks would hurt these um councils. Uh, Pat Reid is calling us from Glossop in Derbyshire. Hello, good afternoon Pat. Hello. Hi there. Uh, What did you want to tell us about? Well, I think that the councils today have grown far too large to manage what they're supposed to be doing. They are giant businesses masquerading as councils. We need to go back to the small pre-1970s councils, which were local and incidentally didn't pay their councillors. They had all the local knowledge they needed. They knew everything about their area. Mm. You could get at them in the street if you had a problem. And they had human-scale budgets to manage and local knowledge to help them doing it. But, Pat, can I I put this to you, though? 1972, pre-1972, which is the era that you're talking about, um, the demographics were really different and the demands were different. So we have an ageing population. We have a social care uh, crisis, um, we are told time and again. These are different challenges now, requiring different, maybe structures, different, and definitely different budgets, wouldn't you say? Well, I hate to say this, but Longdendale, our local council, of which my father was a member for a quarter of a century, uh, had old people, and they're knowing the local people, knowing the area, knowing how many they'd got, they built sheltered housing for them in the day before it was popular. And they manage it when there were three men and a dog, practically. Right. Okay. But the fact remains that we have now got to these enormous councils that promised us originally economies of scale. They've grown larger and larger. 
they're amalgamating their services with neighbouring councils, so your services might come from 50, 60, 70 miles away, mm. which is not economic, and they come delivered by people who do not know your area. So you so want it... Understand. Understand. So, Pat, I mean, it's more localisation for you. Smaller organisations, smaller councillors, much more localised. Thank you for your call. John Davis is calling us from Swansea in Wales. Hello. Hello. Hi. Uh, what do you make of the... Well, I mean, they're saying, and, and we heard from a Tory peer uh, this week, saying, look, the situation is parlous, in fact. So what do you make of this? Well, um, I'm going to refer you, in fact, to um, a publication which contains the research papers from the Max Planck Institute, um, two, um, 2013. Mm-hmm. Um, and they came to a general... A few, in fact, that the problem is that um, the uh, load for taxation is unfairly spread, and the corporations successively, in fact, have paid less and less and less of their share. Um, they do it, in fact, because of their power. Um, they do it because, in fact, they will play one country off and off against another um, in terms of corporation tax levied, especially where, in fact, there are small countries like Ireland or mm. like the Netherlands, in so, fact, so, where the per capita... Yeah, I mean, just because time is ticking. So you're saying, actually, that the, the load has to be looked at and it doesn't matter. You, you can try and make yourself as pretty as you like, but we have demands here. What, you're saying higher corporation tax? I mean, I'm just trying to get to the nub of what you're saying. Well, no, no, you can't do anything about it because, oh, in fact, no. The corporations are too powerful. So, so um, we're just stuck were, in this. So, no, sorry, well, yeah, we're, we're oh, stuck oh, in this fine. situation, Thank John. You very much oh, sorry, John. Uh, Margaret Parker calling from Millbrook in Cornwall. Hi, Margaret. Hello. Hi. Yes, calling from Cornwall. What's it like where you are? It's very wet at the moment. And very windy. <laughs> okay. And council-wise and demands-wise, how's that going? Right. Well, Cornwall County Council is proposing to close all but two of our citizens' advice bureaus. And recently, the judges wrote to the government and warned them that now only the wealthy can afford to bring cases to court. And here we are, just over two years from when we celebrated the 800th anniversary of Magna Carta. And one of its binding principles was, to no one will we deny justice. Okay. Um, When you have councils saying the only way that we can even think about things like CAB, Citizens Advice Bureau, or anything like that, we we are struggling right now to get meals on wheels to people who can't Mm. get out of their houses. We're struggling to get the bins collected on time. There's so many things we're struggling to do. When you say, look, that is actually a fundamental human right, when they say, all right, that's fine, Margaret, but how do we pay for it? What do you say? Well, I think um, a lot of lawyers earn a lot of money, and I think uh, all lawyers should be able to offer a few hours a week free, and they certainly wouldn't be starving, would they? Okay, Margaret, thank you very much indeed. So some more thoughts on this, and then we are going to talk about um, naughty women. Um, do they need pardoning? I mean, they were the suffragettes in their day. They were regarded as lawbreakers. Um, now, though, uh, women have the vote. Looking back. Should they be pardoned if they were sent to prison? Um, should that now that slate be wiped clean? Oh three seven hundred one hundred four 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 is the number to call. Uh, Miss Chin says cuts has consequences. Council cannot councils cannot do more for less. Uh, another one here from Neil Winton. I note all your participants don't want to address the possibility of cutting some of the more grotesque 
waste of taxpayers' money by local councils? Shouldn't that be Act Number 1? Rose Drew says, why not have sensible higher bands of local tax on uber-expensive flats, like the extremely expensive ones in York? They cost £1 million to £4 million. Julia J says, a government with a sovereign currency doesn't find money. They give the order to issue money by crediting accounts electronically, and that money is unlimited, depending on enough resources or labour. And uh, finally, Richard says, uh, local authorities, 26% cuts are cuts to the most vulnerable people. They will cost us dear in the long run, as with roads. Uh, according to the local government authority, every year underfunding costs us £1 billion to sort them out in the long run. Uh, right, finally, in the last few minutes of the programme, the suffragettes. Should they be pardoned? Judy Hopkins is calling us from New Malden in Surrey. Good afternoon, Judy. Good afternoon, Anita. Hi. Yes, tell me what you think about that. I don't think that my great-aunt would want to be pardoned at all. Your great-aunt was a suffragette? Right. What what, what was her name? Let's let's talk about her. Her name was Mari Naylor. She was uh, born in about 1866 and she was an artist. And she had her own one-woman exhibition in Paris. And when she came back to England, that was in 1898, when she came back to England, she joined the National Union of Suffrage. And um, in 1907, she joined the Women's Social and Political Union. Mm. That was Emily Pank herself. During Uh a demonstration outside the House of Commons. Mm -hmm. Um, She was released for that. And then in February 1908, she was arrested for taking part in another demonstration and sentenced to six weeks' imprisonment. And my great, my grandfather, great grandfather, wrote to the president, to the governor, saying he was willing to pay her fine, and she answered back and saying, "No, thank you very much. She mm. wasn't going to have her fine paid. She was going to serve her sentence." Mm. And then after that, she was arrested in 1909 for chucking a brick through the Home Office window. Right. Um, and these women, when they were arrested, they were taken to the. Um, billiard room in Rotten Row Police Station. So Rotten Row Police Station had a billiard room. Right. And this was where all these ladies were taken. Right. Um, Judy, oh my God, I could talk to you for ages about your, your uh, great aunt. Uh, but you think, think if... she would feel absolutely insulted really? and patronised mm. and demeaned if she was... She knew what she was doing. Okay. She could have been a suffragist who weren't militant, mm. but she wasn't. She was a suffragette. Stay there, she, stay there. I want to I want to invite lots of... Gosh, the calls are lighting up now. Pam Tuthill is calling us from Felixstowe in Suffolk. Hello, Pam. Hello. Hello. So, yes, your part of the world was mentioned on the programme by Therese Coffey. It was, yes, that's why I phoned. Oh, right, tell me why you've... Got, right, so what's what did, you, what did you want to tell us? Well, somebody, you've just said it was Therese Coffey... Mm-hmm said that um, they put lives in danger. They didn't. Tell and me tell me why she's wrong. Why? Because the hotel was closed for the winter. <laughs> right. And that's why they did it that day or that time, because they knew the hotel was closed for the winter. They did two other things in and around the area, one in Ipswich and one somewhere between the two towns. But the Bath Hotel was closed for the winter. There was nobody in it. Mm. And I do wonder, I mean, I wasn't there, obviously, whether that was one of the reasons why the firefighters arrived not in time to do anything but save one little wing of it. The rest of it was burnt down. Pam, Pam, guess what? Anybody in danger. Guess what? Mm -hmm. We've got a relative, I think, of one of the people who set fire to that hotel. Am I right? Jane Wood, is that right? From Burton on Trent. Is that you? Yes, I'm there. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Is this yeah. true that it was actually um, what your great great aunt who did the burning down of the hotel? Yes, it was my great great aunt um, Hilda Burkett, 
and her accomplice, Florence Tunk. Well, that is why um, this programme is a little bit magical sometimes. OK, so <laughs> Pam Tuthill was advocating on your uh, great-great-aunt's behalf. Now, you, from the horse's mouth, Jane, what happened? Uh, well, I wasn't there either. No. <laughs> but I, totally, I totally agree with Pam that the hotel was closed. Mm. For It says in the book that I've read that it was closed for renovation, mm. and so there would have been nobody in it. So I was a bit incensed when somebody tried to imply that um, they might have wanted to damage, you know, hurt people's mm. lives. Mm. No, no. Obviously, I know I mean, there are generations between you, but I guess there's sort of family blood and chit chat that goes down the line. Uh, what would your great great aunt have thought about somebody saying, "Right, we pardon you, Hilda Burkett"? Um, I'm not. I'm not quite sure, uh, and I don't know what my daughter's been researching this. She's actually on the BBC website. Um, there's a piece about Hilda Burkett, right. um, and I. I would say I don't know. Okay. I don't know. No, her. no, that's fine. Um, you know, I don't know is a perfectly yeah. valid answer. I'm just gonna. Oh. I'm just gonna. Just great that you called up. Uh, let's just have a few of the thoughts that are coming through on Twitter. Uh, Judy Ann says, if the suffragettes hadn't done what they did, there'd be no women on the panel of any questions today. John Sweet, I suspect violence to property is still against the law. Uh, Elsie says, not a pardon. They were right. They deserve an apology, surely. And another one here. No, suffragettes should not be pardoned. They broke the law knowingly and deliberately. They paid dearly for it with imprisonment and torture, force feeding via throat uh, uh, multiple times. Uh, It is rape by any definition to pardon them, diminishes and belittles their actions, says Marge. Let's take one more on this. Martin Chambers calling us from Workington. Hello, Martin. Cockermouth, actually, but near Workington. OK. What did you want to say to us, Martin? I think we've got the, the cart before the horse. If anyone should be pardoned, it's the government of the day, not, not the suffragettes. They didn't do any wrong. Right. They were fighting for what they believed in and should not be pardoned. They don't need pardoning. That's interesting. That's a very interesting. I've not had anyone put it that way before. And why should we, why should we then, if they, were doing, if they were fighting for right, why should we pardon the government who then, by definition, were fighting for wrong? I think that uh, the government should have had the courage of their convictions years ago and given votes to women before the uh, start of the Second, uh, First World War. But the, the women who were fighting for the vote cannot be pardoned. Mm. It is the government, it is the uh, suffragettes who should pardon the government of the day. Very interesting. I have not heard that put that way at all. Um, just finally, let me go back to our, our first uh, caller, Judy Hopkins. You still there, Judy? Yes, I'm still here. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean... <laughs> well, you were fascinating, those, those remarks. I think the best thing that we could do for the suffragettes is to try and encourage all women to vote. It makes me very cross when people say, oh, I don't bother to vote, because... When, when people like great-aunt Mary went to prison so that I could vote, I think all women should vote, and that would be the best thing that mm. could possibly happen. Well, look at that. Uh, and right on the wire of the programme, thank you so much, Judy. Thank you, Pam. Thank you, Jane. Thank you, Martin. Thank you, all of the callers who got on, and, and apologies to those who didn't or didn't think they got their fair shot this week. It's been lively. It's been good to be back. Same time next week. I hope you enjoyed this edition of Any Answers. Don't forget, if you want to hear any questions or you'd like to invite the programme to your venue, then please go to the BBC Radio 4 website and search for any questions. I'm Anita Arnand. Thank you for listening.